You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. We're flying high with the 58th Airborne Squadron of the Royal Air Force in a Blackburn Beverly transport plane. Well, not too high, because we've got some cargo to drop. It's the early 1950s, and we're on a special airdrop over the Sarawak region of the island of Borneo. The Dayak people have a problem, and the RAF is carrying the solution. When we get above the drop zone, the giant clamshell doors on the back of the plane open, and out goes the payload. Not bombs, not food, not even tools or supplies. As the long boxes slide out the back, you might even be able to hear the hall as it falls. Cats. Dozens. Maybe even hundreds of cats. Don't worry, they're equipped with parachutes. And after they land safely, the boxes open up, and the cats are free to go about their feline lives in the fields, forests, and particularly the houses of Borneo. But now that you know the cats aren't in danger, maybe you're wondering why in the world anyone would feel the need to outfit and deploy a clouder, yes, clouder, that is the word for a group of cats, why in the world anyone would feel the need to outfit and deploy a clouder of parakitties? It's a good question. And it's going to take a little while to explain. And the explanation may end up creating more questions than it answers. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Do Good Carefully. The story of Operation Cat Drop begins with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The United States was moved to enter the Second World War, and they did so on a massive scale. A military draft had already been instituted back in 1940 over fears that Great Britain would be unable to adequately beat back the German, Nazi, and Italian fascist forces. But with the war officially declared, the conscription process kicked into high gear. By the end of the war, the U.S. had trained some 10 million men for combat. That is, in case I need to say it, a lot of people. And to further run the risk of stating the obvious, moving, housing, feeding, and training such a large number of people came with some serious logistical problems. But there was one problem that quickly came to eclipse all the rest. Malaria. 
It's easy to not know that the United States once had endemic amounts of malaria. And the reason it's easy to not know that is coming up real soon, I promise. But up until the turn of the 20th century, virtually the entirety of the contiguous United States was beset with the disease. Up the East Coast to New York, westward to the Rocky Mountains, up through the Great Lakes, but especially in the South, where, as it happens, most of the country's military training bases were located. By the 1930s, malaria had been largely eliminated from the North, due mostly to irrigation, modern housing, and screen windows. Roosevelt's Tennessee Valley Authority had even taken a big bite out of malaria numbers along the Mason-Dixon. But places like Georgia and Louisiana and Florida were still wrought with the dreaded disease, and it was seriously hindering our ability to make war with the Nazi and Japanese forces. Not to mention that troops returning from the South Pacific and North African campaigns were often bringing more malaria and typhus back with them. And then those new strains were being carried into nearby civilian populations, which, in turn, were spreading them right back to fresh recruits. Outbreaks made for overstuffed infirmaries, grinding new employments to a halt. And some troops were dying from the disease, shot through by mosquitoes before they even had a chance to see battle. So the U.S. government founded a new office in the city of Atlanta called the Office of Malaria Control in War Areas to combat the threat. The war on malaria around military bases that the OMCWA launched was three-pronged. First, they dug trenches, built irrigation, and drained swamps, ponds, other mosquito breeding grounds. Second, they launched a public propaganda campaign warning people of the disease and the bug that carried it. But the main arm of the operation was insecticide. The OMCWA sprayed a special, powerful, and long-lasting pesticide on the insides of military buildings, particularly sleeping quarters, as well as businesses, residences, and common rooms throughout nearby civilian communities to kill off the nasty little bloodsuckers. This is what epidemiologists call vector control, and it was wildly successful. Soon enough, the problem of malaria slowing and harming military operations in the U.S. was a thing of the past. By the end of the war, in 1945, there were barely any cases of the disease left on the bases at all, which got everybody thinking, could we eradicate malaria from the whole country entirely? The Office of Malaria Control in War Areas was transformed for this new goal into the Communicable Disease Center, or CDC. The acronym has remained even as the title of the office changed again to Centers for Disease Control. The CDC's first job in a non-military capacity was a large-scale repetition of what they'd done for the Army. In any area where there had been reports of malaria, the CDC would swoop in and spray the houses and large common areas, city halls, museums, movie theaters, etc., with the long-lasting pesticide. By 1949, endemic malaria was gone from the contiguous United States. By 1953, the CDC concluded the operation, having successfully subtracted the most dangerous disease in human history from the nation. That's astounding. In 1935, there were 150 cases per 100,000 Americans, and about 50 deaths per million. That's more than 6,000 people dead per year. Then, in just a little over a decade, zero. Zero. Not a zilch bupkis. And the story was the same in most of Europe and Venezuela, 
total eradication of malaria in a span of less than a decade. With results that astounding, it's little wonder why the World Health Organization thought the next goal was doable. The end of malaria everywhere, worldwide, forever. In 1955, public health officials from all over the globe met in Mexico City to plan for World War III, humanity versus malaria. All of these accomplishments and hopes were made possible by the discovery of one chemical, DDT. It was first synthesized in the late 19th century, but it wasn't until 1939 that Paul Herman Muller discovered its value as an insecticide. There had been other pesticides, but DDT had something special. It was very good at killing insects, sure, but more important than that, it was long-lasting. You could spray a couple of spots on the posts of a house, and the compound would remain effective for six months or more. And that's what made the campaign to eliminate malaria possible. Locations at risk for malaria could be visited just once or twice a year, meaning a relatively small but well-funded team could eliminate disease-carrying mosquitoes all on their own. Or, that was the hope. As you can probably tell, the campaign to eradicate malaria worldwide didn't succeed. Not fully. The WHO did manage to make a couple dozen more countries free of it, and in many places where the disease was not fully destroyed, a lot of progress was made. In Sri Lanka, then known as Ceylon, for instance, cases fell from 2.5 million in 1945 to fewer than 100 by 1963. But because of that advance, the local government cut resources and efforts, and within five years, the disease was back in fashion. Counting chickens before they hatched was not the only reason malaria wasn't bested. War, local resistance, and inaccessible remote locations played their parts. Then there was the question of what to do with regions where people didn't sleep inside, or where the carrier mosquitoes didn't tend to land on walls before biting. One answer was to spray DDT and related pesticides not in buildings, but by air or truck, on forests, roads, and even in waterways, lakes, ponds, and streams. But this indiscreet use allowed the bugs to develop resistance, and soon enough the mosquitoes in some areas were inadequately susceptible to spraying. Of course, there were other problems with indiscriminate use of DDT. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Following the successful campaign by the CDC to keep America malaria-free, the USDA embarked upon a similar approach to try to extinguish fire ants. They sprayed DDT, sometimes mixed with fuel or oil, across public and private lands as well as lakes and ponds. Depending on who you talk to and who you believe, 
chemical companies and the government either didn't know about or actively covered up the environmental and health risks of DDT. I'm not prepared to wade into that debate, but I'll safely describe the attitude around pesticides in the 1950s as, at best, incautious. And here's the closest thing to a defense I can give the sprayers. At a cursory glance, DDT looked safe. The concentrations sprayed were enough to take care of bugs, but were not, on their face, a danger to larger animals. But that view overlooked some real issues. For one, DDT killed insects without prejudice. And there are plenty of bugs, other than mosquitoes and fire ants, that maybe you don't want to destroy. If you're a farmer, maybe damaging the population of spiders, which feed on the pests you're trying to kill, is worse than just letting said spiders do the job themselves. And even if the chemicals themselves aren't strong enough to harm larger creatures, they might still be strong enough to break the food chains that keep those larger creatures fed. Worse still, the very quality that made DDT so good at fighting off mosquitoes was also its biggest danger. Persistence. Because it didn't break down easily, you only had to spray once in a great while, but that also meant DDT could potentially remain in the ecosystem for a long, long time. And while the quantities might not have been harmful in their initial sprayed state, there were fish and birds that ate those poison bugs and then bigger fish and birds that ate those fish and bug eaters. Until, finally, destructive concentrations of the pesticide were found way up the food chain. Today, we call this phenomenon biomagnification, and it's the reason why people, particularly pregnant women, are supposed to avoid eating too many large predatory fish like tuna. Small amounts of mercury accumulate from eaten fish to eaten fish until, by the time you get to the big boys, you're looking at potentially hazardous levels. Yet, at the time, this concept was easy to overlook. It took Rachel Carson, an accomplished biologist turned nature writer, to bring the issue to the public's attention. She'd been skeptical of pesticide sprays, and DDT in particular, for years. But when a friend wrote about birds dying near her property, Carson began to put it together. She helped to figure out that DDT was being passed up the food chain to large birds whose eggshells the drug was thinning to the point that they would break just from being sat upon by their parents. The widespread use of DDT, Carson convincingly argued, was putting birds like the bald eagle and peregrine falcon at fast risk of extinction. Not only that, but Carson also emphasized the very strong possibility that DDT was carcinogenic which really caught the panicked eye of people everywhere. Carson's Silent Spring was published in 1962 and was an overnight sensation. It's hard to emphasize just how large its impact was. Without Silent Spring, you don't have an Endangered Species Act or an Environmental Protection Agency. Hell, you probably don't have an environmental movement at all. DDT was banned in America in 1972, almost certainly due to Carson's book, and the peregrine falcon and bald eagle and other animals managed to make a comeback. So, what's all that got to do with parachuting cats into Borneo? I told you it would take a while to get there. Let's go back to the WHO's malaria eradication program, which brought DDT spraying to Dayak villages in the state of Sarawak on Borneo. Like most places that allowed the indoor spring, Sarawak saw its number of malaria cases precipitously decline. But local villagers also noticed some other effects. 
There were complaints that the spraying was destroying their thatched roofs, for instance. Which wasn't exactly what was happening, but close. The spray wasn't damaging the roofs, but it was killing off the larvae of a certain small parasitic wasp. That wasp fed on and bred in a native caterpillar, which ate, you guessed it, thatch. It also happened to avoid the area sprayed with the pesticide. So, an uptick in caterpillars, a downtick in roofs. It doesn't end there. The poisoned wasps became easy food for local geckos. The geckos weren't killed by the DDT, but reportedly it did make them sort of slow and drunken, which then made them tempting targets for local cats, who lapped up lethargic gecko after lethargic gecko. The Dayak people then noticed the local cats behaving oddly, shaking and crawling and mewling around. Within a week, they were dead. Which would be a sad enough story right there. But without cats around, the rat population boomed. And where there are rats, there is... plague. In Borneo, the World Health Organization was trading malaria for plague. And so, to fix the very problem that they inadvertently had created, the WHO enlisted an RAF cargo plane to parachute fresh supplies of cats into the villages and end the plague rat menace. Question. Why did the British drop cats on Borneo? Answer. Because World War II recruits were getting malaria. What could be simpler? But I said the answer would lead to more questions, didn't I? And the main one is, did this actually happen? It's hard to say. On the one hand, sources for this story are everywhere, and not just on dubious blogs or unreliable podcasts like this one, subscribe and like on iTunes. You can find accounts of Operation Cat Drop in Time Magazine, Nature, The New York Times, and even in official US Senate hearings. Yet, in each telling there are significant deviations, Sometimes it's a dozen cats. Sometimes it's several thousand. Sometimes they're dropped in 1953. Sometimes 1963. And everywhere in between. Sometimes it's geckos the cats were eating. Other times, cockroaches. The rats carry plague in most versions, but sometimes hemorrhagic fever. In one New York Times story, the problem with the rats was that they were eating too many crops. The Times thought that this food shortage caused political destabilization, which led to a communist uprising. Not in Borneo, though, but Vietnam. It is really tough to sort through all the conflicting info, which is why I'm glad someone else did it for me. Dr. Patrick O'Shaughnessy at the University of Iowa published a delightfully comprehensive article in the American Journal of Public Health picking apart every last bit of legend, myth, and fact from the tale. Let's get one thing out of the way. The roof collapse thing? We can verify that, easily. And the method of action is just as I explained. Dead wasps, live caterpillars. From there on out, things get muddier. One of the things that makes the cat drop story seem suspect is that while most tellings have the events taking place in the early to mid-50s, nobody appears to have talked about it at all until the mid-60s, which, perhaps not coincidentally, is after Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Because the most important through line of the events is that idea of biomagnification, 
which people didn't know about until Carson shed light on it. Wasp to gecko to cat. But another thing we can say about the cat drop story with relative certainty is that even through biomagnification, cats could not have gotten enough DDT in their systems to die. It would simply take too much of the chemical to prove fatal. Way more than several cat stomachs full of stumbling geckos could hold. Yet, there are plenty of reported cases of cat deaths accompanying anti-malaria campaigns, from Indonesia to Vietnam to Bolivia to, yes, Borneo. So, if those can't be attributed to biomagnification, then what the hell was happening? The answer is far simpler than the legend, and rests upon two of the most obvious cat behaviors, marking and cleaning. Cats, as they are wont to do, rubbed against walls treated with DDT, and then, as they are equally keen to, licked themselves clean, ingesting large amounts of the poison directly in the process. We've got records of this happening many times over throughout the world, and at least in one case, in Bolivia, the lack of cats does seem to have contributed to the spread of rat-borne hemorrhagic fever, though not plague. However, no such outbreak was reported in Borneo. So what about parachuting cats on the island? Is that just another bit of flim-flam, the result of the storytelling equivalent of the very biomagnification it's meant to explain? As it happens, no. Of all the suspect parts of the story, the most remarkable aspect is true. There are at least three sources which back up that the RAF did indeed airdrop cats inland to help fight off rats, though the number seems to be closer to 20 than 14,000. If there was no disease, why take this extraordinary cartoon measure? It's not clear. Uh, it could be that there was a surge of rats that were eating food or otherwise pestering the locals, but the only documented contemporaneous rationale comes from a local officer, Malcolm McSporin, who, after waking up one morning to find that a rat had eaten the stuffing out from his pillow as he slept, requested the cats be dropped as revenge. Whew. If you've never heard any of this before, it's gotta feel like quite a ride. If you're among the group who have heard it, I hope you at least hadn't heard it all. But I know that there are two other sorts of people when it comes to this story, and they're a little at war with one another. Because Operation Catrop is, along with Silent Spring itself, ground zero for an ongoing feud between environmentalists and public health officials. You can probably riddle out what that fight looks like. On the one hand, DDT and other pesticides have serious deleterious environmental effects. On the other, malaria kills close to a million people per year worldwide. Some particularly irascible libertarians, and have you ever met an unirascible libertarian, like to blame environmentalists generally, and Rachel Carson specifically, for the deaths of millions. Which has an irony about it, considering that the anti-malarial programs they allege Carson interrupted were themselves the sorts of big government actions they're opposed to. But the truth of the matter is probably somewhere in the middle for these warring factions. And the problems themselves mostly usher forth from overextension and extremity. DDT, as used for indoor spraying, has a very small environmental footprint. It was only the mass outdoor and agricultural spraying that created the egg thinning and other issues. Meanwhile, 
Carson herself didn't advocate for not using DDT indoors for vector control. But once the public narrative turned against DDT, moderation and limiting its use, too, went out the window. If there's a solution to be found for all these contradictory problems and questions that accompany Operation Catdrop, it comes from the DIAC people themselves. Tom Harrison was a fabulist who made his home in Sarawak, and he's probably the guy who got this whole story started in earnest. He claimed Operation Catdrop was his idea, but he also passed along a phrase common in the DIAC language, and I think that it contains about as much wisdom as you can possibly pack into three words. It goes like this. Do good. Carefully. From the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. Constant.